This week's episode of The Book of Boba Fett is quite controversial all over, quite much everywhere, it seems, because apparently everyone is mad about the Power Rangers motorcycles. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Nerdsplosion. I am your host, John Wintrub, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? Well, I just watched the Patriots get absolutely annihilated in the postseason. That's how I'm doing. How about you? Hey, man, we say scored one touchdown. That's pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> wow. Could have been worse. I was thinking it was just going to be a three-point game for them. <laughs> you really had to be savage like that. I'll give it to you, though. I'm I'll just saying. You. Like, I mean, the Bills scored almost, like, wasn't it almost 40 points, or did they go over 40? The final score was 47-17. to 17. Uh, yeah, because I I stopped watching at I think after they scored their their touchdown to get them over thirty points <laughs> because there was, I just didn't think there was a reason to watch anymore. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. But hey, JoJo's was fun. Yeah, we had JoJo's. We had I mean all the stuff in the present and Book of Boba Fett was really good. Um, but before we get into that, we have a little bit of news to talk about because we got the first look at the Batgirl costume for the Batgirl movie. Yay. Uh, looks cool. Very colorful. Uh, looks visually appealing and intimidating in some ways. I like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad they went for the more colorful look. The design, of course, comes from the Burnside comics for Batgirl from the New 52, and also DC Rebirth, because it was repurposed for that as well. And the design itself was originally made by uh, Babs Tarr, who has seemingly lost her mind on Twitter after after it uh, was officially posted by the actress playing Batgirl for the film. So it's... I'm very glad they didn't just go for the regular black look. However... It's very clear from the design of the suit that this is definitely not going to be um, in the Matt Reeves universe that the Batman is taking place in. It's a little too colorful for that. Which I'm fine with. Yeah. And if the rumors are true, it also probably won't be taking place in the DCEU either or in whatever universe Titans is taking place in because it seems... That they're currently, they either are currently casting or have already casted an actor to play Dick Grayson as Nightwing for the film as well. And I take it that is something you're very excited about. I mean, you have to consider the last time that we saw Dick Grayson in live action on screen was in Batman and Robin. Oh, yeah, Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> and to be fair, Chris O'Donnell isn't terrible. And it's not really his fault that he was given the script he was given for that movie. But he didn't really feel like Dick Grayson. (laughs) Um, And, like, don't get me wrong, we've had our fair share of really good versions of Dick Grayson in animation between, like, Batman the Animated Series and also in Young Justice. So, but I would be more than happy to get a good version of him in live action because we've never really gotten that because even the version in Titans doesn't really feel like the Nightwing I know from the comics. Because the whole thing with Nightwing is he's supposed to be um, 
Batman with Superman's personality, ideals, and morality. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, and that's the reason why I love the character so much. It's the reason why I'm currently reading um, the Nightwing run by Tom Taylor, which is absolutely amazing. I recommend everybody to read it. It's legit the best ongoing comic right now, followed closely by the Superman run by the same writer. <laughs> um, but no, it, I, I, like, I love Dick Grayson. I love the Bat family in general. Like, I'm glad that we're getting a new version of Barbara Gordon. Hopefully the movie will be really good. I know that it had a lot of issues in pre-production because I know that Joss Whedon was originally tapped to direct it, and then Justice League happened, and then the allegations against him happened, and then uh, the movie was kind of in, like, production hell for a little bit before finally getting picked up by HBO Max. Yes, another another movie that could be really fun is exclusively HBO Max. Yeah, I mean, like, it really depends on the budget it's given and whether it'll be good and look good. I'm going to hold most of my criticism until I see the thing, um, how much it being a straight-to HBO Max film will affect it. But we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, uh... It, it looks like it'll be at least a fun movie. I will give yeah. it that. Yeah. To my knowledge, Michael Keenan is currently set to play Batman in it, which is interesting. That's pretty awesome. I'm not going to lie. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was very good as Batman, the 1989 version, even though that movie did have one very significant flaw. I do think Michael Keaton was very good in that film. Yeah, like the whole cast in those Danny Elfman scored Tim Burton films is really good. A lot of the issues just come from the writing because none of the characters really feel like the actual characters from the comics. And I would say that's the case for almost all four of them, all four of those films. Um, that's like the biggest issue they have. And that's something that the, the Dark Knight trilogy touched on a little bit closer, although I think Batman Begins is, like, the only, so far, the only, like, Batman movie that actually got the character, the mythos, and everything about um, the the characters from the comics that were in that film right. Because as good as, like, Heath Ledger's take on the Joker is, it's not exactly the most accurate portrayal of the character. I mean, the like the morality and stuff is there, but he never really feels like the comic book Joker because nothing he he doesn't have any of like the silly gadgets or um, or the trademark things that we know from the Joker that you can see in like Batman the Animated Series, for example. So, and that's like the biggest reason I'm excited for the Reeves film is he seems to trying to capture more of the, what the character of Batman in the comics is actually like, even if he still doesn't have as many of the silly or more comedical elements the comics are more well-known for. Well, the biggest problem, well, that, that's also true, but the, also the main problem with 1989 for me was that the movie was called uh, Batman, but the Joker was really the main character. I yes. did, I, that's not that's bad if you're gonna have a title character make him the prominent person in the movie not the villain who isn't in the title character i get you i get where you're coming from but like at the same time do you hold that same criticism for avengers infinity war not in the absolute slightest 
because it was done so well that like it was it it subverted my expectations. Yeah. So your your issue is the execution, not just him having more screen time. Correct. Okay. I'm just that's what I was trying to get at. I understand. But but no, overall so the stop us from getting on too much of a tangent. Overall, I'm most excited for the Batgirl film. It could be interesting, it could be fun, but I need to see a trailer first before I have like more thoughts on it, which we probably won't get for a while since the movie is still in production and is currently filming. Gotcha. So we'll just have to wait and see how that goes. Speaking of stuff that is straight to streaming, we watched episode three of The Book of Boba Fett this week. And before we weigh our, our criticisms of the flashback scenes, we'll talk about the stuff in the present because I don't know about you, but all of the present stuff I pretty much enjoyed. I thought most of it was really well done. Oh, I thought everything in the present was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. I loved uh, pretty much everything. The, the Black Kurstan fight. Uh, I loved uh, the, the new characters. I love how Boba dealt with them. I loved <laughs> uh, all the tensions uh, w- with all the power struggle. I, the, I loved everything. Yeah, yeah, because we open up this episode with this market owner, <laughs> this basic this store owner that apparently runs like a, mo- a moisture store selling water, coming to Boba for help. Like basic, you know, like mob stuff, like small businesses coming to the big mob boss to have his business be protected from the local gangs, you know? It's very typical with stuff that we see. It reminded me of um, the first episode of Legend of Korra with um, the gang that Korra defended that business from. It's that typical stuff, you know? Or, um, or like in Golden Wind during the Rolling Stones fight, how the old man comes to Bruno for help when he could have gone for the police instead. So it's very, like, typical mob stuff. We see Boba go and confront the gang. But instead of you know, enforcing his justice on them. He recruits them in order to have them change the streets instead of just causing further damage to them, which is really neat and another really good show of Boba's character because he's he wants to do right by as many people in, in most Espa as he can, and part of that is taking these ruffians off of the street and pointing them towards a better use of their skills. Yes, I love this. Not only did he better them by giving them work and helping him, but also fixed the problem. Boba basically told the market to stop uh, overcharging for water. Obviously, it's a scarce resource in a scorching hot desert, but he essentially made a deal like, hey, you lower your prices, I'll use you. And things are better. He just used pure diplomacy for that. Not everything has to be solved by violence, and that just goes to show that you know that there there are two there are two sides of everything. Boba could have easily just like, oh, these are the bad guys. Let me take care of them like a hero. But no, instead, in a way, he kind of made the the market dealer as the bad guy. Ultimately, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a clear cut and dry situation. Boba. Uh, saw both sides and made the best judgment for himself, showing just how 
much potential he has as a leader and how much humanity and intelligence he has. I thought that was probably the best individual character moment so far in the first three episodes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And of course, thinking of all the different sides that this conflict has, we learn about how Bib Fortuna, of course, the the one that held claim to Jabba's palace before Boba killed him at the end of the Mandalorian second season. And we learned how he divided up all of his lands and how much of the families control them, as well as the fact that the mayor actually holds no actual power over Mos Espa. He's just there as a figurehead to try to keep control over everyone else that actually owns land and territory. It further emphasizes just how powerful uh, Jabba really was because Bib Fortuna was basically kind of hanging by a thread. And yeah, he had wasn't that no effective. control over those lands and he had to split them up because he wasn't powerful enough or intelligent enough or feared enough to control it like Jabba could. This is true. And that, of course, cuts straight into seeing the huts come to Boba explaining the situation to him and the huts realizing just how messed up the situation is and wanting nothing to do with Mos Espa at all. That's how you know it's bad. <laughs> yes. there. It, it's very complicated. We never truly realized just how complicated uh, tattooing uh, politics can be. And not to mention, when there's no true order, how chaotic it can be. Yeah, we have all these gangs vying for land on top of other rival syndicates, like what we saw. It could be things like the Crimson Dawn or what we saw at the end of this episode with the Pikes. There's so many other syndicates that are just as big as the Huts. And the Cousins not having a whole lot of backing from the larger Hut family, um, because from what it seems, they're falling apart due to Jabba's death at the end of Return of the Jedi, they don't really have the strength to compete with the other syndicates, thus why they're choosing to leave the planet rather than try to contest ownership like what Boba is doing. Not to mention they're encouraging Boba to abandon Tatooine. Yes, because they, if, they know that if they can't deal with it, they don't have any faith that Boba will be able to either because he doesn't have even a small margin of the assets that the Huts do even with the Hutt family seemingly getting broken up on Now Hutta. Which the only time we really see Now Hutta is the Clone Wars. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the big thing that you mentioned at the beginning of the discussion was the Black Carsonton fight. And part of the reason why that fight is so good is because of the choreography as well as the direction by Robert Rodriguez. You can really feel the weight that Carsonton has. And seeing a character like this in live action for me was just incredible. It's not very often that we see these more obscure comic characters be portrayed on, you know, in live action on the silver screen or on the small screen in Star Wars. It never happens, really. So it's just cool to finally get something like that. And hopefully we see other characters from the comics get put on screen as well in the future. I Now, having seen what they did with, with Black Argentin, I now have full faith that they can adapt these characters really well. When I tell you that I, I yelled so loudly when Carsonton, uh yanked Boba out of the healing tank and just started tossing him around, 
that will I yelled so loudly just because it was so enjoyable and it scared the crap out of me too. Yeah, the fact that it took so many of them to take him down is incredible. And they never really beat him. They just tricked him into being over the Rancor pit. Yeah, seeing Kersetan just shove a bunch of people, like really just overpowering everybody, it shows how much of a formidable foe he is. It it took a lot of luck and a lot of sheer desperativity. They just felt powerless. They just had to outsmart yeah, uh, you mean desperation? Desperation, yeah, yeah, and not to mention using the home field advantage, uh, smartly. Yes, absolutely. Do you think that um, Boba choosing the release Black Carsonton um, instead of selling him back to the Gladiatorial Arena where he technically is meant to hold his allegiance to, um, will come back to help Boba in a future episode? I think will I think it will because I feel like Kurzatin is is a character that is smart enough to say hey he he let me go he didn't have to do that he could have easily just executed me or imprisoned me or enslaved me but instead he let me go and let me do what I want to do mm-hmm. I think that is something that holds a lot of honor holds a lot of value and it is something that should be uh thanked for yeah i mean you have to consider that um carsington had kind of this honor or oath taken with the huts before this so i imagine that he now owes something similar to a life debt the boba and to my knowledge in the comics i've only read a few issues that he's appeared in mainly from the Darth vader run not a whole lot of stuff from his appearances in dr afra but he seemed like a an honorable um, warrior whenever he was on screen. And he at least showed Boba respect in the comics like he did in this episode. So we'll just have to wait and see if that comes back. But considering how well the Book of Boba Fett deals with payoffs for the most part, I think that it will come back in the, in the large way later on. Absolutely. Honestly, that'd be pretty awesome. And I'm excited to see how they would pay that off. Yeah. But, of course, probably the only issue I really have um, with the present stuff in this episode is the card choice with the mayor's major domo. Because while it is structured well, and the set pieces are really cool, I loved all the practical effects. Um, and I love the speeder designs being more retro, kind of fitting with graf- with um, American graffiti. They felt super George Lucas. I mean, you look at the designs from Tech Clones, and they fit right in with the stuff on Coruscant. But it just felt a little too slow. Like, it was just paced kind of awkwardly. I've heard that complaint. The reason why it, I didn't have a problem with it is because it felt realistic. Like, they were going through the streets of Mos Espa, and there was a lot of tight corners and tight... Uh, type passageways that they were going through. So it made sense that the speeders were going a bit slower. Is, is how I viewed it. Yeah, I get you. It just didn't make it as exciting as it could be. So I, while it makes sense, like, from a practical standpoint, as you're saying, it just didn't make for, like, as entertaining of a scene as it could be. So that's where my complaint comes from. But I get what you're saying. I can understand that. Yeah, I, 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 just, simply, I just simply immersed myself. But I also think your point is very valid. Too. It could have been more enjoyable. I will agree with you on that. Yeah, and and again, like all the set pieces were still really good. Like um, seeing 
I think it was the the one with the cybernetic eye implant um, right on the side of the wall with his speeder was pretty cool. You have the scene of him running, of the major Domo running into the market, and you see all the the actual destruction. Like, it looked like that whole market was practically done, which is really incredible. Um, I'm I'm glad that they didn't just overuse CG for the chase. It looked like it was really real, and I love that. In fact, the pra- almost all of the practical effects in this episode were really well done. But we'll get into the, the biggest one that I'm most excited about in, um, in a moment. Yeah, I thought I thought this I thought the whole uh, thing was really cool. Really got to see payoff of how he, Boba uh, t- took this gang and just enlisted them. And you already see that Boba doesn't have to do everything himself. The fact that we got a whole chase that didn't involve Boba is, first of all, something I didn't think we'd see this early. But also, it shows he's already growing in power. The fact that he didn't have to chase after them himself. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we see that growing power with the Hut's gift to Boba being a rancor. Um, and I love the way that um, that Book of Boba Fett is seemingly humanizing all these things that were initially demonized in Star Wars. I mean, we first got this with the Tusken Raiders in episodes one and two. And now we're getting it with the rancor with, of course, the Keeper being played by... Um, by machete which is just the best considering what the actor's own thoughts on animal abuse are but a lot of a lot of the ways that the rancor is dealt with in this episode is just really nice like it's treating this creature that is seemingly seen as dangerous and was only ever used as a weapon before in star wars and, and not necessarily humanizing but like treating it as like an actual pet um as we see with how boba is petting him in this episode and my favorite thing about all of this was that the Rancor was practical with CG over it. They actually had like a large model for the Rancor on set for them to actually touch and, and play around with. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, getting more uh, of analysis of the Rancor because all we've really seen is that Rancors are monstrous creatures and, you know, especially in Return of the Jedi – Oh no, the Rancor, you know, a very iconic yeah. line from that movie. But now it's like, okay, it's it's not just something that eats uh, people. It actually, you know, is, is kind of like a pet and actually does have at least some emotions. Because a machete said that, that the Rancor is depressed and Boba's like, they can feel that? I, th- I, th- I think that just shows that, like, yeah, not everything is just completely black and white like maybe some um cinema portrayals of star wars things are yeah and i think it was incredibly smart to have um danny trejo not play an action heavy role in the show i mean it'd be easy to just throw him in and have him be this like badass bounty hunter character because it w- he would still fit that perfectly but i think giving him a more emotional role was really fun and the way that he interacts around tamara morrison as well is fantastic and I'm excited to see what we get more with the Rancor. I also appreciated them touching on the amount of emotion that the owner or um, person that raises the Rancor and, their, and the bond that they have. Because that's like a little throwaway thing that we see in Return of the Jedi when the, when the Rancor owner 
or trainer is crying over his, the dead body <laughs> after Wook defeats the Rancor and returns the Jedi. That's such a throwaway moment, yet um, they touch on it here with the emotional bond that the owner has with the Rancor. I thought that was really neat. I thought so, too. I, I, that, I didn't think about that. That actually does make that scene better in retrospect. Yeah, but... Of course, I didn't love everything about this episode, and I think the thing that's causing at least the most rational discourse on social media right now is the stuff in the past. And of course, we begin the flashback um, with Boba leaving the tribe to go to the Pikes to work out a settlement, to work out a deal with them. And of course, from there, we learn that the Pikes don't want to pay multiple gangs for safe passage over the Dune Sea. Boba, of course, promises him that they'll never have to deal with this other swoop bite gang ever again, and that the Tuscans will take care of it, and that they're in much larger numbers, and they'll be in more safe company. So, of course, Boba sees this as the deal being completed and then goes back to his tribe, and on the way back, we see smoke on the horizon and we find out that the whole tribe has been seemingly decimated by the rival gang. Dude, when I tell you my jaw absolutely dropped in horror, yeah. that's exactly how I felt. You were right. See, this is, I, I, and I hate that I was right. Because, first of all, damn you, John Favreau, for your writing being so predictable. Because... Don't, don't get me wrong, like, I might have been fine with them dying if it happened in a different episode or if we saw their deaths on screen, right? But not only does he kill them, and the episode after we get um, a full look into their culture, we see Bobo's development with them, we see them as actual characters, as actual people, and then he kills them off screen and doesn't even show all of the dead bodies. And it's just, it's just so lazy. It's such a lazy way to give character motivation and character development. And there are so many other ways he could have done this scene. We could have had Boba help defend the, tri defend the tribe against this rival gang and lose because of lack of resources. We could have had a more emotional moment with that. They could have shown this scene in the later episodes that maybe wouldn't feel as painful or like it was right after we got so much time with them. It, I think that this episode kind of made me realize, or at least it makes me think that a lot of the stuff that we got with the Tuscans in the previous episode wasn't fully from Jon Favreau's creative mind. <laughs> because I can't imagine that this scene and all of the stuff with them in the previous episode were written by the same person. Here's my thing. I do agree that this could have been done a lot better. I will admit that. I still think that it did have an impact considering the development that they got and the fact that they were just completely destroyed. I think that future episodes could make this more impactful. Uh, yes, I, I agree. There is a possibility that depending on what they do with this moment going forward, it could be made better. But I, at, at this point, there, 
it just felt like such a step back from a writing perspective for me compared to what we've got in the last two episodes. Yes, and another thing I will say is this felt like, in some ways, this was a fan service moment. And what I mean by that is, when was the last time on Tatooine we saw a character leave and then come back and seeing their home on fire and flames and they see dead bodies? Yeah, it definitely is a callback to the original Star Wars film with Luke finding Amberu and Uncle Owen dead. I definitely yeah. think that that's what they initially pulled from. It's not, it doesn't really fall under fan service as much as like poetic, like reuse, kind of like BB-8 containing the Mac, the Luke Skywalker, like R2-D2 had the plans to the Death Star. Or the reuse of, I guess the reuse of the binary sunset is more, is kind of falling under both fan service and poetry, but you get what I'm saying. I do. It's more of like reusing iconography to give a illicit feeling and to make us understand what's going on. It's not fully fan service as much as it is like an easy method of storytelling to get us to understand the emotions that the writer and director want us to feel. Um, the Rise of Skywalker is probably the worst defender of this, but yeah, it's very common in Star Wars. Yeah, that is true. I, like I said, I do think it could have been better. I still think it could end up really working. But yeah, I, it, I will agree that from just, like, because we covered this weekly, just from a, okay, we took episode two on some, we took episode three on some. Yeah, I do agree that it is a bit of a step back. Yeah. How, here's how they could maybe rectify this, at least in my from my point of view. We didn't see the female warrior's body get burnt, right? So that, that does give the illicit hope that maybe she got away and survived and we might she, see her come back in a later episode. Um, a lot of people have been talking about the fact that we also didn't see the, the young kid's body from episode one, but we did see Boba burn um, his stick, like his mini um, gaffy stick that he, that he had. So it's, it's likely that the boy is also dead. But I, again, like the thing to rectify with this Ultimately, if they really want to go hard on the symbolism, is I would love to see Boba go to the other tribes and tell them what happened to this one. And then out of revenge, he gathers these other tribes and they all go after this one gang and collectively take, take back control over the Dune Sea. Because as we saw in The Mandalorian, we know that the Tuscans inevitably ask for tribute over the Dune Sea. And that tribe was one that was very different from the one that Boba um, was captured by in episode one. So at some point, we, there's going to be this more widespread collectivity between the, the tribes of the Tuscan Raiders on Tatooine. And I think that it would be neat to see them go that route. I don't know if they will, but it would be cool to get that. And that would maybe rectify some of my feelings from this episode so one thing i think they could definitely do is yes having that revenge would be awesome but i think another thing they could definitely do is really get an inside look at, at all the gangs of tatooine obviously uh the, the gang at mos Espa, we got s some of them 
And we see Boba deal with the gang in the opposite way that he dealt with this gang, showing how far he has come from the past to the present. I think that'd be a, a lot of good symbolism there. Yeah. I, I mean, like, yeah, I could see them doing, I think that it, in a perfect world, we get both of these things, right? We get both him gathering the Tuscan Raiders and turning them into one collective group rather than a bunch of separate tribes. Um, and we do, we have that scene as a parallel to what he's doing in the present day with trying to regroup most Espa and try to get everyone under his control and under one leader and try to clean up the streets like he was shown doing at the beginning of this episode. But that is a task that will be seemingly made quite difficult by the Pikes seemingly coming in large mass to Mos Espa. Absolutely. Um, one, one thing is I really hope that this next episode focuses more on the past than, it, than the present this time around, just so not only can this like, be further rectified, but a lot can be done with this traumatic event because uh, Boba like, kind of re, uh, you know, getting that flashback was interrupted by Kuristan uh, yanking him out of the tank. So I want to see I want to see uh, a lot more with the past because it was interrupted in the present for a good reason, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, us getting so little of the flashbacks makes me wonder if they should have just took the the flashback of seeing the tribe get decimated and move it, and should have moved it to the next episode, considering how little effect it had, and it also could have been a good way to give more time with the Pikes after we see them at the end of this episode. And also make the Pikes showing up at the end feeling like more of a surprise. I do agree with that. What, what did you think of really seeing the Pikes uh, in, in live action? I mean, this is, like, yeah, we, we have gotten them before this episode, but this is really one of the first in-depth looks we've gotten of the Syndicate really in live action. Because they were mainly represented in animation. Yeah, I mean, we had like a bit of them. Yeah, yeah, we had a bit of them in Solo A Star Story on Kessel. But I'm, I'm actually really interested to see what they do with them because it seems like they're going to be the main like antagonists for the series now, um, which is really interesting. And since I find, I, I really liked what was done with the Pikes and Obadiah in the Clone Wars with the few arcs that we got, even in the arc that felt just a little too long from the final season of the Clone Wars, the Pikes were still like one of the best parts of those episodes. So I'm more than happy to get more of them. They're a really interesting um, criminal group and they make for some really fun villains in the world of Star Wars. So I'm definitely glad that of the many groups they could have picked from, whether it be like Crimson Dawn or the Black Sun, I'm glad that they picked the Pikes. Me too. Uh, The fact that they control Spice you know, kind of like Dune is very valuable. And I like to see more representation and the underworld of Star Wars, especially in live action, is not something we've gotten that much of. Yeah, and Star Wars is, of course, very, very inspired by Dune. I mean, and I think the Book of Boba Fett is the first thing in Star Wars that we've really done and that kind of takes even more inspiration from Dune. I mean, like with the Tusken Raiders, a lot of the stuff with them, of course, comes from um, looking at indigenous races from here in America and other countries, but it also pulls a lot from the Fremen, from Dune, because the Fremen were also similarly inspired by those same cultures. 
Absolutely. That, that, that is, that is a good point. So I'm interested to see what inspiration we'll get in the next few episodes. And again, hopefully they rectify some of the choices made here because I, I mean, while my anger has simmered, uh, my initial thought after watching this is, and I know that you don't feel the same way, but for me, this was now three years in a row that Star Wars seemingly disappointed me by making the easy choice or the lazy choice rather than the more interesting one. I, I get you, but let's, I, I think the best thing is to see like the total product before like maybe feeling that way. It, it's just how I look at yeah. it. Yeah, I get you. No, I, I don't disagree, but that's like, they're going to have to seriously do a lot to get me fully on back on track with the story. Cause this just disappointed me that much. I and understand. I have uh, experience with science fiction franchises disappointing me, as evidenced by the fact that I don't watch Doctor Who anymore. <laughs> so, I would like that not to happen with Star Wars, but we'll just have to wait and see. Currently, I'm not the big. I'm not completely sold on John John Favreau's writing. I think he has this the set of tools that he uses and takes from. And whenever he reaches a point in his story writing where he doesn't, where he's like done with characters and doesn't really know what to do with them next, he throws them away. Um, we saw something similar, and don't get me wrong, I like I.G. Evans' death in the first season of The Mandalorian, but he did something similar there. Where like, where do you think he would have taken I.G. Evans in the first season of The Mandalorian had he lived? Uh, probably be a companion of, of Din going forward, and the fact that Din finally has a consistent droid companion, which is something he never would have imagined. Yeah, and how meaningful that could have been. But the issue is that he would have had to rewrite the character and add ways to develop Din with having a robot companion like IG-11. And that is hard. That would be way more difficult then killing him off to give um, emotion and feeling for Den. I think the death worked that, though very well, though, because it, it provided... I do think it worked fine, but, like, that's my point, is that if IG-11 had lived, it could have been more interesting from a story perspective. It also would have been more difficult for him to write that than, have, than killing him off and having a short moment of emotion for Den. It still was executed well because of the way it was directed and the way it was told visually, but from a writing standpoint, that's kind of weak. And that's something that we see again with the Tuscans in the book of Boba Fett, which is why their death didn't surprise me. It just disappointed me. I understand. But... To get away from things that have disappointed us, because the one thing that really hasn't disappointed us is the current season of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, because, oh boy, episode 12 is pretty dang good, if I do say so myself. And of course, I don't know about you, but the biggest reason I enjoyed this episode so much was hearing Patrick Seitz's Dio again. Yes, the man, the myth, the legend, Dio. Oh, man. And it's interesting seeing his relationship because that's what it is. I mean, yeah, they say that they're best friends, but do you really buy that off of the way that Poochie was describing him? 
as this, this beautiful omniscient being as if he came down from God himself. <laughs> yeah, he talked about how beautiful, uh, Poochie talked about how beautiful he was. Yeah, and I'm like, and like, yes, the dub does describe them as best friends near the end of this episode. But like, I think I got to agree with large amount of the fan base and saying that they were probably more than just best friends. <laughs> yeah. And keep in mind, we, we do know that Dio got around considering uh, Giorno existing. So. <laughs> yeah. And keep in mind, Poochie was only 16 years old. Oh. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man, I didn't man. Think about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's never stopped Dio before. <laughs> you have to consider this is the guy that took a man's head and stuck it onto a bird in Van Flood and had a mother eat her own baby. <laughs> He's yeah. like the most evil character in all of JoJo's, arguably. Although I'm sure that Kira could give him a run for his money. And maybe Poochie will at some point in this season, too, <laughs> considering what he did to the guards. <laughs> I still think Dio wins that title just because of, of his god complex. I think that makes him even worse than Kira. Yeah. Yeah, I understand the boy, so. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like arguing that this terrifying monster is worse than this other terrifying monster. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's just goes to show how good the villains in JoJo are. And again, Pucci is like no exception to this rule because he is extremely manipulative and intense during this episode. Um, the whole conversation he has with Joanne in the beginning is so good because you can see him playing all of his cards so perfectly. Yes, that moment completely satisfied me, especially where uh, Poochie was like, okay, I don't know exactly who it is that's hiding because I know Jolene's not alone. So let me let her go to the courtyard. And the fact that he had the, the wisdom to have a guard patrolling there shows just how intelligent he is because I didn't think that would happen. Yes, and of course, if you were paying attention to the dub, that guard is, of course, voiced by Bill Butts, who's the voice of Chocolata from Golden Wind. That <laughs> Definitely is Definitely one of the more recognizable villain voices in JoJo, so I immediately picked it up. <laughs> that honestly is amazing. But, no, I, I am, on top of that, you can see how ruthless Poochie is from the way that he tries to get the guard to help him. On top of the fact that we also see fear from P from Poochie for the first time in this series when he realizes that Jolene's companion is weather report when frogs start falling from the sky. <laughs> Which, yes, is a thing that happened in JoJo's. Just when you think you've seen it all. Just when you think that you have seen it all with this show, we have poison dart frogs raining from the sky in Florida. Yes, because how weather reports power apparently works is that if a weather phenomena has happened before, he can recreate it. It's not just that he can manipulate weather. It's that he can kind of do whatever Rocky wants him to do with his powers. And in this case, it's to create a hurricane that causes frogs to fall from the sky. Um, yes. 
Apparently, cats, dogs, lizards, snakes have rained from the sky in Florida over 50 times. Yeah. yeah. I, do, well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand, <laughs> but I'll go with it. I mean, it makes for some good tension because it makes you wonder just how all of these characters are going to get out of this situation. Because while, yes, this does solve the problem of Poochie trying to kill Joeen, it doesn't save them from getting killed by the poison dart frogs that are falling from the sky. <laughs> Gosh darn it, weather report. I mean, I can't really, I mean, what else could he have done in this situation? <laughs> that would be like half as entertaining as this. Well, you're not wrong there. Because, but I, I, I love the way that each of them deals with the situation with Poochie trying to use his power to get the guards to help him out of the situation. I, I really love that on top of the way that he treats the guard that wouldn't let him out of the courtyard. Yeah, you could just sense the frustration. I love how Poochie was counting up prime numbers. I, I yeah. loved that so much. Yeah, because it's a that's a real thing. If you count prime numbers, it can help you concentrate in the situation and help keep his mind focused on trying to survive the situation more than anything else. Yes, and I love how we got one wrong. <laughs> yes. Well, I, again, like it's that's just it's showing that he's human, right? He's not this like perfect omniscient being. I think that's the best part about almost every JoJo's villain is there's always this essence of humanity. I mean, one of the biggest reasons why we like Dio, for example, so much is because Dio's whole thing is trying to reject his humanity when him being human is the reason why he wanted to become a vampire and non-human in the first place. And he still has all those same human urges that even though he isn't human anymore, that, that bit of humanity is why we like all of these villains so much. I mean, Cars is one of the, is probably the most human villain in all of JoJo's, yet he's the one that is the least human. Yeah, good old, good old Cars. It's a name I haven't heard in a long time. But so it, it, it's one of the best parts of these villains is that we, they, they feel real. And they have actual flaws, and the way Iraqi writes those is what makes it's part of what makes them so compelling. Yes, that is one of the most consistent parts of JoJo. Arguably, the most consistent part is every single part of JoJo's has a great villain. Every single one. Yep. yep. And yep, and Stone Ocean is no exception to that. <laughs> No, because we got at least a small taste of Poochie's backstory where he was aspiring to go to a seminar, and that's when he met Dio, and Dio wrote, uh, basically wrote down a way to go to heaven. And Yes, a way to achieve heaven, specifically. Not necessarily go to heaven, but like achieve being a perfect being is kind of what Dio, is, Dio means by that. Achieving perfection, achieving heaven, achieving God. Yes, and the reason why he, he has badly wanted Jotaro's memories is because Jotaro burned that book and, and opened the book, and Pucci wants to see the memories of Jotaro doing so. Yes, because, he want, because Jotaro read the book. He read 
presumably how Dio believed that um, heaven could be achieved, right? How the world could be remade within Dio's image, right? And Pucci wants to see that because he wants to continue Dio's wishes. He wants to make, he basically wants to remake the world in Dio's image, seemingly. And he thinks that this book that Dio wrote holds the key to all of that coming to pass. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of how Isaac was in Castlevania back in season two. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because in for those that haven't seen Castlevania, Isaac is a, is a follower of Dracula and, and wishes to follow Dracula's image by destroying all of humanity because that's what Dracula's last wishes were, seemingly before he died. Um, and then season three, that's all Isaac wanted to do was follow Dracula's wishes. The big difference between him and Pucci is that Isaac had someone like the the captain of the ship to tell him that he needs to have his own path and his own purpose um aside from just dracula's while pucci assuming we never had someone like that probably because of his own pride because pucci like dio probably views himself as better than humanity and that's a big key difference that isaac didn't really have because even isaac could admit his own flaws being human but that's something that Pucci hasn't done and like we never will do. Well, yeah, because when you're best friends with Dio, it's very difficult to have that humility. Yeah, Mike, and that also comes from him being a priest because he views himself as a man of God um, and that Dio came to him as this, like, divine thing. Like, this, this man... This powerful, beautiful, omniscient, omnipotent man came to me to talk to me specifically and cultivate a friendship with me. And because of that, I must be the only one destined to follow in his footsteps. It's this like self-righteous um, proclamation that he's made of himself that he has to do these things because he believes that he's the only one that was made to do them. Yes, and I also, one thing I just thought about in the conversation that Jolene and uh, Pucci had, uh, Jolene was like, oh, I don't want to lie to a priest. Oh, I just lied to a priest. Like, that, that just it's, makes it's it more. It's interesting that Jolene seemingly has more humanity and has more care over Christian values seemingly than Pucci does, despite Pucci being a priest. <laughs> that is, that's wild. That is and such a small moment that tells so much about both of them. Yes. Um, and what Jolene did in this episode just shows her extreme intelligence. The fact that she is, she essentially played dead. It's not something I really thought I'd see a Jojo's uh, protagonist do against the main villain. Really? Because we, we already got that in part three. Did you forget when Jotaro stopped his heart in order to save Polnareff from Dio? Actually, I did forget about that. Oh, well, actually, yeah. that makes that makes it even better because like, that makes, father, it, like, it makes it even better. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. My well, bad. No, it's fine because again, 
it's it's the reuse of imagery. I mean, we talked about this with the book of Boba Fett, and a lot of the stuff being done with Jolene in this part is a lot of reuse of imagery and iconography from Jotaro. Because again, he's arguably the most popular JoJo's character ever, <laughs> um, and it only makes sense to reuse a lot of his imagery and a lot of moments from um, Stardust Crusaders for. Joeen and just kind of twist them in a new interesting way. I mean, even the opening for Stone Ocean knows this, where we get a lot of the poses that Joeen has seemingly mirroring ones that Jotaro had in his in the openings for Stardust Crusaders. So it's very clear that both Araki and David Productions understands how popular Jotaro is as a character and that we will recognize these callbacks in one way or another. Yes, I accidentally uh, uh, recognize that. And one thing I will say is the fact that she played Dead Allure Pucci into grabbing the disc and then she, and then she gives it to Sentinel Guardian. Savage uh, Garden. Savage Gardens. Uh, oh, my gosh. The, yeah, I, it's I, I Savage get that. Guardian in the localization. The actual original name is Savage Garden. Which, of course, we recognize yes. as the band that did the ending theme for Diamond is Unbreakable. <laughs> yes, which is easily the best ending theme of JoJo's Fight Me. <laughs> I could, I would argue for Modern, Modern Crusaders by Enigma from Golden Wind, but that's just me. Uh, also, the ending theme for Stone Ocean is pretty good, too. So. Yes, it is. But it no, is. and of course, this episode ends. Actually, before we talk about the ending of the episode, what did you think of White Snake picking up a gun? <laughs> did you did you ever think that you'd see like a stand just like holding a gun? <laughs> that was a very jarring moment. I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't right. Something something is not right here about this. And it was very jarring. <laughs> I was like, oh crap! I was very scared for Jillian. Thank God that guard was an idiot. Yes. But it is really funny seeing White Snake holding a gun. <laughs> yes, yes, but, it is. Yeah, and that also brings up the one thing I don't think that we talked about yet in, um, during our Stone Ocean discussions, and that's the use of CG for characters and stands in Stone Ocean. I mean, we've had CG used before in previous parts, like for um, Aerosmith and Golden Wind, or, uh, or background shots in other parts, um, especially both Stardust Crusaders and Golden Wind, I know used a lot. But it's, I think with the tight schedule that they had for Stone Ocean, we got a little more, and of course we got a little CG done for, for uh, Lane Rangor in the previous two episodes. But we also got um, CG White Snake here. Was the CG jarring for you? Because I know it's been jarring for a lot of people um, have, on social media, and there's a lot of YouTube videos talking about the use of CG um, in Stone Ocean compared to other parts. Was that jarring for you, or did that not affect your viewing at all? Because it didn't really bother me too much until people like specifically pointed it out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We had a post-credit scene. Yes, we did. Yeah, because the, the episode ends with Jolene being taken back into prison. Of course, for you know, another escape attempt. I don't, I, don't under, I don't know how many years that is for her in prison now, because that's not the second time that they think that she tried escaping. <laughs> but the episode ends with Poochie talking to what will 
seem to be a new minor antagonist. I don't know if there'll be like another one-off stand user like what we've got in previous episodes of Stone Ocean or other like arcs in JoJo, but we got a little bit of a look at Sportsmax, who to my knowledge is a decently popular Stone Ocean villain, so I'm excited to see what he is all about going forward. Um, but more importantly, we get a closer look at what Pucci is like as a villain and how trusting he is in Sportsmax. Because Pucci before this point was more safe with his identity. He typically was very careful about who he told who he was. I mean, like killing John Gallier back in episode five, the ensure that his identity never got out, right? So it's interesting that he would reveal so much of himself to this new character. Even though Pucci himself stood behind a pillar. Yeah. But he was still in the room with him. That's that's more than most villains in JoJo would go. Even um, Diavolo was more safe with his identity usually than that. Yes, and he gave Sportsmax a bone of Dio. Yes. How the hell did he get that? I mean, I imagine that he probably took a trip to Egypt sometime within the last 30 years. Not too out of not too out of place, but the real question is what is Sportsmax going to do with that? I imagine it has something to do with his stand, but why would a bone of Dio be important? Is Pucci trying to maybe recreate the stone mask or maybe he's trying to resurrect Dio or maybe there's another purpose that we don't know about yet. Yeah, I, I, I am yeah, very puzzled by this. I feel like it's the part of a ritual or something to maybe try to revive Dio because I feel like uh, Poochie wants, wants to see Dio again. I feel like this is, in obsession, or he just wants to, you know, hear from Dio himself how to achieve heaven or something like that. I feel like it could be something along those lines. Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see when we get new more episodes sometime this spring. But but no, do you, um, what did you think of Stone Ocean overall so far? Now that we've watched the first twelve episodes, the way this is heading, this will easily be the best part of JoJo's, even better than Diamond is Unbreakable, because it is a perfect culmination. And in some ways, Stone Ocean feels like the Deathly Hollows Harry Potter book, a culmination of everything. There's a lot of great callbacks. There's a lot of great development. And except for one episode, every episode has either satisfied me or has been completely enjoyable and I can't wait to see where the story is going. And episodes 5 and 12 might be the two best JoJo episodes ever. Not just because of the shocking moments, the great action, but the payoff of previous parts. Absolutely. Uh, where I stand on Stone Ocean right now, I don't know if I would say it's, it's my on track to be better than Diamonds Unbreakable, but... It at least will be my second favorite animated JoJo's part, if not, you know, better than DIU. Um, it still doesn't quite reach um, how good Steel Ball Run is, but that's like the be expected concerning that Steel Ball Run was written after Stone Ocean. And I can already see a lot of the steps that Araki took as a writer while 
making Stone Ocean going into Steel Ball Run, which is on its own really exciting. I can especially see it with the way that Jolene is written, um, because it's queer that Araki has not always been the best of writing female characters. I mean, you look at um, Arena Pendleton from Phantom Blood or Susie Q or the lack of um, time that Lisa Lisa had on screen in Battleton C. Um, or the way, or the lack of any major female characters in Stardust Crusaders, and you look at that, and then you go from Diamonds Unbreakable up until Stone Ocean, where we start having um, more female characters with interesting stories and and complexity and development, to the point where we now have not just a female protagonist in JoJo's, but half of the cast is seemingly female i mean it really depends on how you classify foo fighters considering that she's technically just a bunch of plankton in the flesh suit but <laughs> it's interesting seeing how much iraqi has kind of progressed as a writer not just like from a bite standpoint but also from a character standpoint going from phantom blood up to stone ocean yeah i do like the development a lot in a way it kind of is another example of the perfect culmination, how, you know, the, the protagonist of the culmination part is a female character. It shows how much better female characters have gotten. Trish and Golden Wind was a really good one as well. I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know Jolene and watching uh, her go through. And like I've said in previous episodes, it really one. uh, it's really pushing me to play near Autotoma, which because made, of Kira Buckland's performance. <laughs> yes, which is absolutely fantastic, I have to admit. Yeah, she is really good as Jolene. Um, this is the first, I think, anime role that I've heard Kira Buckland in that was definitely more of this the sassy, this sassy more action oriented character. Because usually she plays a lot of like the cutesy, like young, young voice characters, characters like Beatrice in ReZero, for example. Um, up until like, I think her getting cast as 2B, that was maybe what she was playing. And then when she got cast as 2B in Nero Tomda, it seemingly changed everything about what role she could get casted because she was cast as Rami Sugimoto in Diamonds Unbreakable shortly after. And inevitably all of these steps her widening her vocal profile playing um, stuff that would have normally been out of her comfort zone when it came to voice acting inevitably went to Jolene she she basically manifested herself becoming her favorite JoJo's character which is just so cool and and it kind of shows you that if you have a dream you have to take all of the steps and work as hard as you can to get there because that's exactly what she did. Yes. It wasn't like, just luck. Like, it is partially luck in getting the right roles, but it's also the fact that she took a lot of steps in order to, to get her voice performance and get her, her variety in voice acting um, to the point that she could audition for and get cast as Joanne for Stone Ocean. Yes, as is Stone Ocean is the culmination part of JoJo's. This is the culmination of her entire career. This was this was her dream role, and you can tell in every single word that Jillian speaks that that it, it entire's work, entire's lifetime's worth of work is being put into this performance. Yeah, you can you can just and hear it. That's 
Yeah, and that's not to say that the rest of the cast isn't holding that holding up or like keeping up with her performance either. Like you look at um Yang Yi's performance as Poochie and it's and it's still amazing. I mean, sure it's not going to be like life changing like Kellen Goss' performance as Diablo is, but that's like such a high bar to put up. He easily stands aside beside almost all the rest of the voice actors for JoJo villains that we've heard thus far. He brings this kind of effortless, like quiet intensity to Poochie that I, I don't think any other um, JoJo's villain um, really has and represents that perfectly through Poochie. Yeah, Poochie has been phenomenal and especially in this episode where you get to hear a, fair, a lot of different range of emotions, the voice acting for him really stood out. Yeah. And that's one of the key things I think almost every Jojo partner has, has had is, at least when it comes to the English dub, is that the voice actors for the protagonist and the antagonist, for the most part, have always been really, really good. Um, like the only one that like fell on the weekend in the beginning was Philip Reich. And to be fair, I don't think that's really his fault because Giorno is not the most uh, compelling character uh, line, like script-wise um, for most of Golden Wind. So I can't really blame him for that. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't have as much to work with for most of Golden Wind. Yeah, but I mean, when he really got moments to shine, he was amazing. So I guess that's all that really matters. He definitely did. He definitely did, especially the Chocolata fight. Yeah, but but no, I and I was initially worried with Stone Ocean's English dub because, like, when when you have to rush an English dub out because they recorded all these twelve episodes really fast and they have to make sure that it fit in everyone's schedules so that it could all go up on Netflix at the same time. And initially I was worried that that would cause the quality to not be as good as previous parts, but I'm very glad that wasn't the case. Because again, like the dub was produced by Bang Zoom, they brought back Tony Oliver to do the ADR direction. They brought back Matthew Mercer and Patrick Seitz for Jotaro and Dio. Um, and the rest of the cast is phenomenal thus far. Um, like Stephen Fu and Brittany Wilda, and especially Casey Mongeo is in Borneo, especially it was really good. So I'm very impressed with how well um, the English dub is, considering how fast they have to record it. Yeah, I'm glad that the quality has been excellent. In some ways, this has been a, a one of, if not the best, uh, voice acted JoJo's part so far. Kira Buckland's a big part of that because I think she's easily the best voice actor of all six parts. But the supporting cast has been great, too. You mentioned Casey Mahilo as uh, Emporia. I think that's another standout as well. Yeah, I would argue that it's, like, on par with Golden Wind. I would say that Golden Wind and Still Notion's English dubs are equal for me, quality-wise. But that's also because I'm like, you can't really get better than like near perfection for me. Because <laughs> you look at like, I would put all the scenes between um, Jolene and Poochie in episode 12 and say that they're just as good as um, Bruno's confrontation with King Crimson in Golden Wind. When the quality of the voice acting, I would say it's, it's on that level. 
I think it is a lot better just because I, I mean, that also could be just, uh, I, I had more emotion in those scenes, but I just think, uh, the total emotion and range portrayed was better in my opinion. Okay. I can understand that. And, and like, that's also coming from the fact you've heard Kira Buckland a lot of things before. So you know what she can sound like and you can tell how much range she has, um, going from like hearing her as Beatrice in ReZero to hearing her as Jolene and JoJo's. So that definitely plays a huge part in it, I imagine. That is also true. But no, any, any final thoughts on Stone Ocean before we close out the podcast, Sean? Looking forward to the show returning. It's been a blast to watch JoJo's again. And yeah, I'm I'm, I am loving this part so far. It's definitely fulfilling my expectations. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, there's a part of me that wishes that we were getting these episodes weekly so we wouldn't have to wait until March to get more. But like, I'm glad, I'm more than happy to wait that long because that's how long it'll take for David Productions to give us more amazing JoJo's content. Um, but no, I'm, I'm loving Stimulation so far. I'm very interested to see what we get with Sports Max and Poochie going forward. Because it seems that section of the story is going to be really interesting. 100%. But that will, of course, do it for this week's episode of the podcast. Sean, what do you have coming up on the site this coming week? Well, uh, NFL playoffs are on the are, are continuing to roll. Uh, probably a day before this podcast comes out, I'll have a preview of the 49ers and Cowboys playoff game, which... There's so much good history and matchup matchups to talk about there. And then I'm also looking to maybe write a column about the Las Vegas Raiders loss today because there was something I noticed during that game that was a little bit concerning. And then next week, hopefully, be able to get my uh, Super Mario Odyssey review out. Awesome. Um, for me, I finally had the chance to watch Super Crooks on Netflix, which was excellent. I hope to put out a review for that soon. On top of a couple of the anime that I was watching seasonally finally ended, so hopefully I have reviews out for that as well. As well as finally finishing my top 10 anime openings article, because it's a little bit difficult to write for, because there were so many amazing that we got this past year. Um, and then hopefully a top 10 anime was soon after that. I still have a couple more shows to finish for that list. Um, so that it can actually feel complete and like I actually, you know, watch the shows that I'm going to talk about on it. Um, but I will, of course, be having reviews out for um, Life Lessons with Urumichi Onesan, which is a, a nice kind of mature comedy anime about um, employees or like TV um, personalities for children's programs realizing um, that they'll never achieve their dreams because they're working for a children's show now. It's a, it's a very dark comedy, but it's hilarious, and I highly recommend it to anyone that has that kind of sense of humor. Um, although, and also, I'm currently covering uh, Ranking Kings every week, so I'll review out for that for the first quarter of that once it's done as well. So... Um, but no, that's, of course, what I have coming up on the site. And that will do it for this week's episode of the podcast. So thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day.